Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Uh, if you have not already done so, make sure you are following, that you are connected to us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And you can also check out the podcast wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, just to name a few of those platforms. And you'll find us at that same username, at Radio Islam USA. Our family, this past Sunday in Sri Lanka, as Catholic worshipers present for Easter Sunday services and tourists at three hotels were getting ready for their days to start, the following took place. At 8.45 a.m., bombs tore apart three churches and at least three hotels in Colombo. There was also another explosion at a housing complex in Demetagoda. Also, the U.S. Embassy in Colombo has confirmed at least four U.S. citizens were killed in the bombings. Now, at the time of this program, the death toll stands at a staggering 290 people with over 500 injured. So before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray for those whose lives were taken. Uh, we pray for their families. We pray for their communities. We pray for the injured. We're praying for peace. We're praying for understanding. Uh, we're praying for an end to this type of violence that it seems to uh, plague the media cycle. But to help us get some context on this latest uh, unconscionable and terrible event, I am happy to be joined in studio by Reverend Dr. Shanta Permawadhana, who is originally from Sri Lanka. He's the president of the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, a global training organization that builds interfaith peacemaker teams to counter religious extremism and region-based oppression, domination, and violence. It trains people of faith to deconstruct theologies of exclusivism and superiority and reconstruct theologies of pluralism. It also trains them to build power by engaging diverse communities for effective collaborative action. We're pleased to welcome him to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam. Very good to be here with you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. And uh, and it's unfortunate it's under these circumstances that we're talking. But one of the things that we want to kind of explore, hopefully, uh, in the conversation today, is is first off to give folks who may have just heard about uh, Sri Lanka may have not known that there has there's been a uh, there's been a, a history of tension and violence. Uh, that's been based in, in religion, um, to give them kind of an, an, an ed education, a kind of an introductory crash course, uh, if you will. Uh, so if we could start there, could, kind of, could you kind of let folks know what the, the, the demographics are religiously of uh, Sri Lanka, what's the majority, who's in the minority? Uh, could, yeah, let, let's, let's start there. Okay. Well, first of all, on Sunday, we had this tragic event uh, take place where uh, three churches were attacked, uh, two of them, uh, large Catholic churches, one an evangelical church, yes, uh, and also three large hotels in uh, Colombo, yes, and uh, two other detonations uh, took place uh, elsewhere in Colombo, and then there are there were several other uh, bombs that were safely detonated by the bomb detection squad, mm -hmm. and uh, as you said, three hundred people were killed, 
uh, almost 300, and over 500 people injured. Clearly, this has been a devastating blow. Uh, some have said that uh, in the uh, last five years or so, uh, we have not seen uh, such a um, massive attack uh, globally. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a it's a very big deal event. Uh, Sri Lankan government should not have been taken by surprise. They had uh, somebody had uh, they had received information ten days prior to that that this kind of thing was going to happen, and clearly nobody took notice of that. Right. Uh, leading to this uh, tragic events taking place. Mm. So <clears throat> that's the basic story about what happened on Sunday. Yeah. And if I could just interject that we absolutely stand in solidarity with our, our, our Catholic brothers and sisters, our Christian family, um, you know, in this horrific loss. Thank you. And this is very important that we all stand in solidarity with each other. Yes. Uh, I say that because just a year ago, uh, in fact, March of 2018, mm -hmm. there were some incidents in the central part of Sri Lanka uh, where um, some mobs uh, incited by Buddhist monks went out on rampage against Muslim communities uh, where uh, in several villages people were killed, uh, mosques were destroyed, uh, Muslim businesses were burnt down. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of um, extremist violence that took place. Right, right. And uh, at the time, um, there were many Christians and Hindus and other Buddhists uh, who came to stand in solidarity with the Muslim community. I was there myself during that period mm -hmm. and saw uh, for myself the kinds of things that uh, that went on and how people came together. So this question of solidarity is obviously very important. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you, uh, just speaking on that particular incident in March of uh, 2018, what was your initial reaction to seeing violence being uh, meted out against, um, uh, against Muslims? Well, sadly, this is not new. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have seen this before, and I have, I have heard and followed the, this question for a long time, uh, which then uh, makes me say uh, a word about the religious demographic of Sri Lanka, which you asked first. Yes. Uh, so Sri Lanka is 70% Buddhist. It is known as the cradle of Theravada Buddhism, and uh, Buddhist people consider uh, this a mandate given by the Buddha himself to protect Buddhism. Mm. Um, about 9% are Muslims, about 12% are Hindus, and about 7% are Christians. And then there are a few uh, smaller religious communities. Okay. So <clears throat> there's a history to this question. Mm -hmm. uh, we should remember that Sri Lanka was one of the countries that had the long, one of the longest colonial experiences. For 453 years, mm -hmm. Sri Lanka was under Portuguese, Dutch, and the British. Which means that during that long period of time, Buddhism was decimated. The, the Sinhala culture was destroyed. Right. This is what the colonials did to us. 
And so when, uh, in 1948, uh, shortly after India, we received independence, mm -hmm. there was a swing towards nationalism. And so in the 50s, we had the Sinhala nationalism. By the way, Sinhala is the largest ethnic community. Tamil is the second largest. Mm -hmm. most, most Sinhalese are Buddhist. Most Tamils are Hindu. Okay. Okay. So, so because of the nationalism, there was a conflation of ethnicity, Sinhala ethnicity, and Buddhist religion. Okay. Mm. So, when those two came together, the, the the moniker Sinhala Buddhist came to be used. Okay. And obviously, the large majority of people were Sinhala Buddhists, but that excluded. Sinhala Christians, right. Tamil Hindus, Tamil Christians, Muslims, all of the minority groups were excluded from the Sinhala Buddhist moniker, right. which meant that Sinhala Buddhists had the power and really felt like they could do whatever they wanted. Right. <laughs> so there was, um, so there was an effort to maintain or to protect this image of a homogeneous um, society? Well, there was, a, there was an attempt uh, to um, consolidate power in a particular ethno-religious group, the Sinhala Buddhists. Right. What happened, therefore, was that there was, um, there was unrest that was arising from the bottom uh, with Tamil people who said, we are being discriminated against. Right? And as a result of several uh, ethnic conflicts that took place, those were not necessarily religious conflicts, but ethnic conflicts that took place. Mm -hmm. In 1983, um, uh, a Tamil terrorist group called the LTTE, or the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or more commonly called Tamil Tigers, okay. arose. And led us into a 26-year-long war. Wow. Okay, so <clears throat> we've just come out of that. That was, it, it was over in 2009. Mm -hmm. So we've actually had 10 years of peace before this incident took place on Sunday. But that's just one piece that we need to bracket out right. and, and, and hold. So there's another piece to this. Okay. In the 1980s, there was a Christian evangelical movement that arose here in the United States and in Europe and in South Korea that sent in missionaries to Asia, to many different parts of Asia, including Sri Lanka. And these were more fundamentalist type Christians who believed in the exclusivism of the Christian faith. You know, we are the only right ones. You guys are all going to hell. We are going to. If you're not with us, <laughs> you know this. You're losing, yeah. right? And 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 a, a, a certain supremacy, you know. I mean, we got it all right. So that's what they brought in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there were uh, there there was a, a a lot of pushback from the Buddhist community against these. Uh, these fundamentalist Christian groups that came. Okay. And there was, in fact, uh, a law that was proposed that never passed the parliament called the anti-conversion law. 
even though even though Sri Lankan constitution gives religious freedom rights to everybody all religious communities right they said that that these missionaries are converting people by fraudulent means by giving them money or favors or something like that in order to get converts mm -hmm. some of it may have been right uh, but a lot of that was overblown right mm -hmm. so this problem arose in the 1980s resulting in some buddhist groups extremist groups causing violence to the christian these new christian groups okay right? so so there'll be new churches coming up in in different locations in villages and so on and they would go attack them they would kill the pastors they would attack the people and burn the churches and and so forth were these were these conversions along uh, particular uh, ethnic lines? Sinhala and Tamil. Okay. Mostly, it didn't go to Muslims. Okay. Mostly Sinhala and Tamil. Okay. So when that happened, see, Buddhist extremism is very new. Okay. Mm -hmm. And well, no, I can't say that. It, it, <laughs> in the recent incarnation is new. Yeah. Right. So, the. <laughs> So what happened is that certain groups of people incited mobs to say, we have to protect our Buddhism and our Sinhala culture. And in order to do that, the way to do that, we need to stop these Christians from doing this evangelization. Right? So, so therefore, they went to attack the, the churches. Mm -hmm. So just got to remember that piece when we understand the Buddhist violent extremism in fact, it, in the early 2000s, there was a, uh, for the first time, Buddhist monks uh, engaged in politics. They ran for office hmm. in a uh, political party called uh, Jataka Hela Urumea, or the, uh, or the uh, National uh, Heritage Party. Okay. Uh, they ran for office, something that had not happened in history. But then when other monks began to say, well, these guys are too soft. They, are not, they, they, they undertook physical violence, mm -hmm. right? So they created another group called the Bodhu Balasena or the Buddhist power force. Okay. Right. And there are a couple of monks particularly who have been very violent, virulent uh, people. And they, they don't go do the violence themselves. Mm -hmm. They incite the mobs to go, go perform the violence. Okay? Oh, okay. So this is where it, it's been since the early 2000s. Was this, was this a response to the history of colonialism yeah, it, and the spread of, of it, Christianity? Yes, we can't, we can't ignore that fact, mm -hmm. right? Because, because Singhala Buddhists feel an anxiety that others of us don't necessarily understand. Right. Because if you look at Sri Lanka as in, physically in the map, right. Right, you, you have the Tamil population in the north and the east, and the Sinhala population and Sinhala Buddhist population in the lower two-thirds of the, of the island. Okay. Right? There's nowhere in the world that there are Sinhala Buddhists. This is the only place where the Sinhala culture and the Buddhist religion come together and is nurtured, right? Right. The Tamils in Sri Lanka are 
in a minority. However, just across the ocean, 30 miles, the Pork Strait is only 30 miles mm. <laughs> wide. 30 miles away, there's Tamil Nadu mm. with 50 million Tamils, oh, Hindu wow. Tamils, right? Yeah. So, so the anxiety for the Sinhala Buddhists is that we are here, we are the only ones in this place that is trying to hold on to this. That's the anxiety. And so you have the British and the Portuguese and the Dutch coming in for 450 years, they try to decimate this thing. There is, you know, it, it arises from within you to try to, to address this question and hold on to what is good and noble. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you're trying to hold on to that using the very thing, violence, that you preach against. Right. That's the problem. That you were victim to yourself. Exactly. And you, Buddhism is such a nonviolent religion in mm -hmm. every possible way. So this is an anomaly. You see this in Sri Lanka and you see this in Burma, mm -hmm. where, where Buddhist violence, violent extremism has arisen. Right, right. Okay. Now to finish the next part of the story. So this is how it started, right? Yes. So Christians got attacked, right? Mm -hmm. And then they began to see that there is a incoming Muslim conservatism. Okay. This is true. I, you, you see this in many parts of Asia, right? And it, it's sort of a piety that goes with conservatism. Uh, for example, you will see many women in parts of Sri Lanka in full burqa. Yeah. Right? This, when I was growing up, we never saw that. Oh, really? Yeah. Women would wear a hijab. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they would dress modestly. There's no... But that, that conservatism was wasn't there. The, correct. Yeah. And so, so when you see the Muslim community today, you know it's, that's just only one outward sign. Sure. But if you look at the the legislations, look at what is being preached in the mosques, uh, what people, are, there's a conservative, it's clearly that has come to Sri Lanka over the past 20 years, I want to say. Right? Okay. So this is felt by the Buddhist community and they are, they are worried about that. And the rhetoric that went on in the matter of attacking the Muslim community last year, Mm -hmm. was based on that perception, true or not, that there is a, in, uh, there's an encroaching or increasing Muslim conservatism in the country. And that, they would say, comes with potential terrorist implications because of, you know, all the connections that, that people make here in America and elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. They make those often unreasonable connections. Right. But because of that, um, the violence against the Muslim communities uh, has occurred and uh, has become, I mean, last year became, came to a, to a head. Right. Uh, some 11 or 15 communities were attacked during that short period of about two months. Hmm. And um, so that's sort of the history of this thing. So Christians and Muslims both have been hit by an increasing Buddhist violent extremism, by a few monks inciting mobs to go and do these terrible things. Well, okay, in light of uh, the, the horrible violence that we just witnessed 
uh, this past weekend. Um, and the history of that, of, 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 the, of being the target of violence, you know, Christian communities, Muslim communities, uh, we haven't talked about, there's also a Hindu minority as well. How has that minority or, or being the target of that violence, how has it impacted relationships between these minority communities, particularly the Christian and the Muslim community? I think Christian and Muslim relationships are quite strong. Um, there have often been, um, but there, uh, throughout history there have been some antagonisms, but partly for this reason. Mm -hmm. Both Christians and Muslims believe in certain exclusivisms. Right. Right? We are the ones who have it right, <laughs> and we are the ones who are going to heaven, you guys are going to hell. Both communities believe this. As long as you believe, if, if, as long as you are not willing to give to the other person the possibility that they may have some truth in their religion, mm. right? And somehow Allah, God might be merciful enough to accept all of us, right? Right? <laughs> the, the, the merciful, the beneficent one right. would accept all of us. Unless we are, if, if, if we can't possibly say things like that or understand that, then there's an antagonism that arises between the two communities, right? Right. So because of the, the fundamentalistic notions that Christians have had, and I can talk about that because I'm a Christian myself, mm -hmm. I know. I know my people. They've had, they've had this. So, <clears throat> so it has been difficult to relate to Muslims for that reason. In many ways, we are just too close. You know, I mean, <laughs> the Quran talks about Jesus and Mary, you know. I mean, we, right. we, we, we've been so closely aligned in some ways. It's like siblings fighting each other, you know. I mean, that, that's, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. So, but when this um, recent violence took place against Muslims, Christians and Muslims have attempted very hard to work together. Um, I work with uh, with Christian communities currently uh, in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. um, but also with Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist communities. Uh, I've had tremendously good success bringing Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus together. Let me ask, uh, with the work you're doing, you mentioned how you were a part of a, a interfaith group that that came to support. Um, your Muslim uh, brothers and sisters as they were being attacked uh, last year. How difficult does it make to uh, inspire others to maintain that sense of cooperation um, in light of the numbers? Because the, the numbers seem to continue to go up and up, right? We just witnessed, you know, 50 people in, uh, in New Zealand, you know, in right. uh, the uh, Al-Nur uh, Mosque and Linville Mosque um, lose their lives to once again, violence rooted in, in, in a just in hateful uh, supremacist ideology. Um, how difficult does it get for you, or do you expect difficulties in inspiring people to maintain that sense of cooperation? In light of now that we're looking at, what, 290 um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, deaths, 500 injuries, uh, and then with reports that are pointing to you know, Muslim extremist. Yeah, um, it is difficult. Um, our analysis from the Omnia Institute mm -hmm. is that all our traditions 
have give give significant weight to what we called top down or received theologies okay it it came from somewhere you know beyond us it right. came from the past it came from uh, higher up somehow and we all receive that and a lot of the time attitudes of exclusivism and supremacy come alongside that like a package right muslims have that and christians have that sure and if people were to hold on to that without thinking about other options way, different ways of our beginning to relate to each other they sort of fit into that extremist corner mm -hmm. whether they are muslims or christians that is what happens so what we have to work with is that broad middle that that we have right. and, and and we simply have to move that middle from thinking top down to thinking bottom up you know what are the questions that are really affecting real people in our real communities and in the present day in our context okay. how do we take that and ask the question how are we going to eat today so a grassroots approach grassroots approach so you know if 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 that is what we are talking about mm -hmm. and not what does revelation mean in islam and what does it mean in christianity that that's not relevant to what am i going to eat today right <laughs> right? right so if you if you focus on that question suddenly muslims and christians can work together on that project and when you work together you begin to understand oh my muslim brother this is a brother or sister that i am working with right. this is not some stranger right mm -hmm. and and i learn something about islam that i didn't know before because my brother or sister told me about you know what they believe and why it is meaningful and why it is important and so on right suddenly the whole picture changes but that's a heavy lift because we've been so inculcated with the received theologies shifting that becomes becomes a hard hard job we think that interfaith peacemaker teams can do it but we have to do a lot of it fast in so, order to make that happen so the 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 idea of interfaith peacemaker teams uh obviously it says it with within the name that it is comprised of different uh faiths but those people that are there um you know whether they're representing christianity islam buddhism hinduism you know uh jain you know jainism whatever it is um how important is and what's the process for the cross educational um uh, uh the, the cross education that that has to take place in order for them to really relate to one another uh in, in substantive uh ways I'll give you an example. Well, we do trainings. Okay. This is how we do it. We do three-day trainings mm -hmm. at a basic level, advanced level, and a training of trainers level. Okay. This March, when I was there, we had a training. In our basic training, we had eight or ten young imams. Okay. These are guys who were wearing the the white. a uh, cloth and, and with a head gear and everything mm -hmm. these they came from a madrasa and uh, th first the first day they all sat together so they were here on one side mm -hmm. and on the other side there was a bunch of nuns catholic nuns okay okay they were also wearing white 
as Catholic nuns do with the head covering and everything. Mm -hmm. The next day when I went in to, to start the training, they are all seated together, a Muslim imam and a nun, a Muslim imam and a nun. They, they, they organized themselves that they would sit among each other. Okay. I thought, what a tremendous picture yeah. of cooperation that occurs when people get to know each other. Right. Because the first day they got to know each other. And they got to know each other as persons, as sisters and brothers. And the second day, they themselves organized. Nobody had to say anything. They themselves organized. They would sit next to each other. Mm. I thought that. See, that's the kind of thing that happens. Now, now it's a month, two months later. That, that today is two months later uh, after we did that. One, one and a half months later. I bet those nuns and those imams are in conversation today. That would not have been possible had they not sat together. And some of them, depending on their community, their, their village that they're from, would be in interfaith peacemaker teams together. Okay. So Buddhists and Christians and Hindus and Muslims would be together in that village trying to figure out what are the questions that our neighbors are asking and how do we build power enough to address those questions. Hmm. And so when people see that here are interreligious people coming together and they are doing something together and they are being successful in doing something together, right. they say, this is not an anomaly. This is the normal thing. This is a good thing. Let's make this happen. Our theory is that after a little while of doing this and if there are enough interfaith peacemaker teams in a community, the culture will change. Because there, the interfaith peacemaker team, their example, it uh, runs over into the, uh, it, basically into the, the populace, into the gra on the grassroots level. Exactly, because at some point people are going to look at that and say, hey, I better be inside this. Because, because it's not cool to be outside that. You have to be inside that, right? right, right. This is how movements happen. At a certain point, you tip the scale. You know, you come to a tipping point mm -hmm. when people say, oh, I better be a part of this. Right. And suddenly you have somebody else who's now engaged with Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Christians. So really trying to uh, present pluralism as the norm. That is correct. Uh, and, I, and I could say here in the United States, that's one of the things, even though we have the uh, e pluribus unum, you know, out of many, one, uh, there is still uh, there's still some resistance to pluralism. Exactly. Uh, so we see some of the same sentiments playing out mm -hmm. uh, right here. Yes. But but I would ask you, you shared some uh, some thoughts on proximity. Uh, you know, off air, um, and what I was mentioning was that simply being next to people doesn't always result in it doesn't result in the desired outcome of people being becoming cooperative uh, and respectful and seeing the humanity in, in one another. Could you share mm -hmm. the example uh, you spoke about? You said you did some work in Nigeria uh, that I found really uh, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad at the same time. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but let me let me th throw the second part on that as well, if I could. Uh, and that's also to talk about those four steps yes. because you mentioned that proximity is important. It's not the end all be all. Correct. But, but you've got four steps that you work with. Yeah. Um, the, the example from Nigeria, I, we do a lot of work in northeastern Nigeria, mm -hmm. uh, where Boko Haram is active. Yeah. And so northeastern Nigeria has um, 
probably uh, 50% Muslims and about 40% Christians. They're, they're very similar uh, in population, in demographic numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and I bring together Muslims and Christians. Uh, for And there are usually 60, 70, occasionally over 100 people who come to these events. Mm -hmm. And so one of the exercises we go through is we ask, uh, each community ask the other questions that they have. Simply, I don't know. Please tell me. Right. Right. So I, the example I was giving you was about uh, one question that came up which stunned me uh, when some Christian uh, asked, why do Muslims turn east when they pray? <laughs> it stunned me simply because, you know, you have lived with Muslims all your life. What is, what's going on that you don't know a basic answer to a basic question like that. Right. So th this speaks to me to the, the, the separation that, that the communities have had over the years. But also, as you said, even if, I, if you are my friend, mm -hmm. I never bothered to ask you uh, something that I don't know about your religion. I never bothered to ask you that question. Right. You know, why do you fast for a whole month? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't, I never asked you that. If I'd never asked you that question, I won't know the answer to that. Right. Right. So then I can build all kinds of stereotypes around that and I, all kinds of theories around that. And, and, and that's, that's not the right thing to do. In fact, Christians say you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's right. Uh, and, and, and not to know Islam is, or, or to speak about Islam without knowing is to bear false witness. Mm. And, and so, so the four things that we talked about, first is called the contact theory, because when, when you and I sit together, um, you, you build a relationship. Now, as you said, it doesn't automatically happen. So, so you have to teach people how to build relationships, how to listen to each other, okay? Listening is not a technique that comes easily or a skill that comes easily to people. Right. Because all of us do this. We, we, when somebody is talking to us, we are trying to construct what we are going to say next. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rather than really listening to that person. Right? Right. So, so we need to learn how to listen and listen to the stories and listen to the things that motivate each other, what we call, um, well, the values and the vision and the vocation of the person, the three V's that we call, that constitute a self-interest. Say those again. Uh, values, vision, and vocation. That's the three V's that we talk about. Mm, okay. Those constitute a self-interest. Self-interest meaning the thing that God compels you to do. It's not that you, you can't just sit around with this thing in your heart because it burns up inside you. Therefore, you've got to do That's your self-interest, right? Right, right. So I, want to dis I, I got to first know my self-interest, and then I got to discover, I got to discover your self-interest. When I discover that, when I find out that our self-interest may be aligned, now we can do something together, right. Muslim and Christian. So that's one thing is to, is to build relationships. Second thing is religious literacy. To, to learn about the other person's religion. What really motivates that person? What's the tradition behind that? 
and, and what do the scriptures say about it? What does the tradition say about that? Mm-hmm. Ask all the questions that you want. You know, you may not get the right answers, but you, you, you certainly get that person's <laughs> right answer. <laughs> right. 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 The third thing is to, uh, to learn to listen to people on the ground, to their communities. What are the real questions that arise from the, from the real context that they live in? You know, often for a lot of people uh, in poor communities, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Right. You know, I, that becomes the question. So rather than think about questions that come up from the top down, you address the questions that come from the bottom up. You know, how can I find job? Yeah. Right? How can I build, how, can I, can, what, do I, what am I going to do with my daughter who's sick? Right? That question, if that becomes a primary question, then Christian and Muslim can work together on that right. without having to worry about is do Christians and worship, uh, Muslims worship the same God? You, you don't need to worry about that question. We've got to work on this matter of this neighbor's child being sick. Right. right? That's the issue at hand. So when you work at that, suddenly the dynamic changes. And we've got to discover, a fourth uh, item is that we need to discover that we can't do things without building power. And we need to build power together. And it comes through building, what I say is organizing people and organizing money. So dealing with the real, the real issues that, that people face yeah, every exa- day. Exactly. Um, and, and I guess I can say this, and I think most people, regardless of what their faith tradition is, would realize that your the ritual obligation takes a, a, a minuscule amount of your time. Right. Um, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm praying five prayers a day. Yeah. That's that's not even 20 minutes. Right. You know, of my day. Right. Uh, so those other issues, you know, that you're pointing to, these real world issues. How do you, how do you keep people focused, or how do you suggest those? Because I think there's a lot in what you what you've just uh, mentioned for those who are in interfaith. Um, uh, how do you transition that into building power? And, and when we look at building power, we're talking, I would assume we're talking about uh, the ability to impact policy. Correct, uh, yes. We're talking about yes, really indeed. a matriculation yeah. into politics, hmm? right? So, so let me start with your question about praying five times a day. Yeah. That, that's very important mm-hmm. because that's your source of power. <laughs> right. Right, because if you don't do that, then you are you don't have the motivation to get engaged in in what is what is going on in the world. Mm-hmm. I think it was Pope Francis who said once, the purpose of prayer is that when you get up from prayer, you will go feed the hungry. <laughs> yes, that's why you pray. Yes. So, uh, so so that's critically important, right? Our, our religious life is important for that reason. But not just for its sake, but because, as Christians affirm, and Muslims do too, um, we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Right. Just a, a, a footnote here. You all might remember, your listeners might remember that back in 2007, Prince Ghazi of Jordan st- uh, started a, wrote a letter with uh, 238 Muslim leaders called A Common common word between us and you. Mm-hmm. He wrote it to, to Christians. Right. 
and Christians gave a resoundingly positive response to that. And that document said two things. It said there are two things we can agree on that, that Muslims and Christians believe. Mm-hmm. One is love God. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Let's not worry about anything else. Let's just do those, do those two things. That's enough. <laughs> we'd, we'd be all right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So building power requires us to recognize that we cannot do things by ourselves. I often, I often uh, tell uh, in my training classes, if I needed to lift this table, I may be able to do it if it was small enough, but if it was, big, it was a big table, I need two or three others to come help me lift it. Right. Right? I can't do it by myself. So we need to recognize there are some things we can do and some things we can't do. And if, you, if you're going to attempt to do something, then you need to organize the people in order to make that work. And sometimes it's, it's building, building, organizing people as individuals, and sometimes it's organizing powerful coalitions. All right. But at the end of the day, we have to address policy you do need to to take care of the individual people that you that that are your neighbors but that's not enough mm-hmm. right L- love in a communal sense is justice right. right and and justice is dealt with in in policy terms you have to engage the political world in right. order to do that so but without power you can't address the political world if i go by myself to see a politician they're not going to give me the light of day that's right if I go with 500 people, that's a different story, isn't it? <laughs> right. So that's, that's the thing. Just, by the way, since we are here in Chicago, yeah. that's what I learned on the ground in Chicago. Chicago has a long history of community organizing. Yeah, sure does. And, and, and that's Chicago's contribution to the world. I take it out to Nigeria, I take it out to Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, and people are soaking it. People are just hungry for it. Because this is something that is new. Nobody teaches them how to build power. Mm. And when Muslims and Christians learn to build power together, Mm. nobody can come and threaten them after that. Um, Let me shift gears. Yes. I want to go back to uh, this idea that the majority of adherents to whatever faith tradition are going to be somewhere in the middle. Majority. You will have your outliers uh, whether they be liberal or, or um, I guess you could say conservative. Uh, but when you have those folks who act upon a belief that everybody else is the enemy and they're willing to take violent uh, stances, you know, to, to, to act on that, how do we, what are your thoughts on how we uh, recognize those outliers without necessarily placing responsibility for their actions on whatever faith tradition they happen to come from or what they, they say they represent. Yeah, I, I, every time I want to be very careful about that. Okay. So there are two things I want to say about it. Mm-hmm. In, in the situation that arose in Sri Lanka this last weekend, right. there is a Muslim group that the government has now said is responsible. Uh, it's a small group, and the government is saying they probably had international connections in order to have such a coordinated 
uh, attempt at addressing as doing such a terrible thing. Right. Uh, the people who've been arrested are Muslims as well. Right. So <coughs> there is a th there's a tendency, therefore, to to very quickly and media does this all the time mm -hmm. to say, oh, Muslims are responsible. Well, no, Muslims are not responsible. This small group of people who are terrorists are responsible. They are not Muslims, right. as far as I can tell, mm -hmm. because if Muslims mean submission to God, they were not submitting to God. They were... <laughs> They're doing something else. <laughs> right. yes. They're doing something else. So, so, so we need to be careful to, to say that it is not Muslims, but it's a terrorist group that's, that's done that. And, and I think we are getting misled too often by media uh, that, uh, you know, the words like Islamist yeah. is being thrown around just all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I sort of bristle at that because, for a, you know, people may have a technical meaning for that word, but the ordinary person uh, who listens to that hears Muslim. Yeah. A and that's a terrible, terrible thing. So that's a part of the problem. That's one part of the problem. There's another part of the problem, and that is that, that when a white supremacist goes up and kills a bunch of Muslims in New Zealand, I make the assumption that, so just a, 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 an additional thing, I make the assumption that white supremacy is directly related to Christian supremacy. Yeah. Okay, and, and that is, I, I've even made the argument that without dismantling Christian supremacy, you cannot dismantle white supremacy. Say it again. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, so, so when a white supremacist goes and shoots up a bunch of Muslims in New Zealand, mm -hmm. I have to take responsibility for that mm. as a Christian, mm. right? I, I have to say, one of my guys did this terrible thing. Whether I like it or not, whether I can distance myself or not, you know, the, 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 a year after a fellow by the name, young man by the name of Dylan Roof went out in, in uh, Mother Emanuel Church, South Carolina. In yep. South Carolina, mm -hmm. and, and killed nine people. Yep. This kid grew up in a church, in yep. a Lutheran church, right? Yep. So, so, so I was there in South Carolina a year after that when his trial was going on, and I was speaking to a Christian group, and I said, you know, where did we fail? This kid grew up in the church. Did the church not teach him right? Or did it? Right? Yeah. Did it teach something about white supremacy that this kid got into his head? And I said, now I have heard this from my church. I'm going to have to go shoot up all these uh, African-American people. Right. So I had to take responsibility for that because I'm a Christian. See, so, so, so the question then comes back to the Muslim community in the same way when people who claim to be Muslim, whether they are Muslim or not, when they claim to be Muslim, Muslim community has to take responsibility for that and say, okay, what went wrong here? Why did these people do that? Why are they claiming to be Muslims? Is there something about our teaching, something the way that 
people teach in madrasas. Uh, is, is something the way in the way that we preach in our mosques that we need to look at more carefully. Mm. The, the, this is a question that comes right back to our own religious communities. Is it is it responsibility or condemnation? Both. And I and I and I, I mentioned these separately because when I think about responsibility, you think about those things that you have an ability to impact to change, right? But if you have these outliers, these are folks, when we think about interfaith gatherings, those are generally people that are coming from the middle, right? The people that are that on the, you know, on the, on the, on the fringes that are ready to act on, on impulses that go against the idea of a common creator, uh, neighborly, you know, uh, taking care of our neighbors and loving one another. Those are folks that are probably not having communication with the middle. Yeah, not with the middle, but somehow they're having communication with someone. You know, so, someone who's preaching extremist doctrine. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So so that's where the problem arises. And that's, yes, condemnation is necessary and important. Mm -hmm. um, but the second stage here is responsibility. So we have to ask the question, um, this person may be a terrorist, but he's my terrorist. Mm. You know, <laughs> this person is, I'm going to have to deal with this guy. Mm. And uh, he's, he's an outlier. He's at the fringes, right? right? Mm -hmm. But it's my fringes. I've I, I got to deal with that question somehow. Let me divert for a moment. Yeah. You mentioned you can't dismantle Christ, uh, Christian supremacy without also uh, dismantling white supremacy. No, other way around. I, oh, I, I'm I, sorry. You yeah. can't uh, dismantle white supremacy without uh, dismantling Christ, uh, right. Christian supremacy. So by that, um, by that thinking, would you also say that those who fall under the category of being white, that they also have a responsibility to also um, uh, condemn and also take ownership or accountability for actions that are taken, um, you know, that are committed by a Dylan Roof or a Stephen um, Haddock or any one of these yeah. number of folks? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fellow who killed up people at the, the Pittsburgh synagogue in October. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So all of those people, for all of those people, you know, I, I mean, just think about that, that Pittsburgh store situation for a moment. Yeah. Um, Christians don't think about it very much anymore, which is unfortunate. But Christian anti-Judaism goes down 20 centuries. Sure. It's yeah. in our DNA. Mm. And um, when a fellow goes out and shoots, a white supremacist goes and shoots Jewish people, we have to take responsibility for that. It's it's not like after the Holocaust everything was over, right? You know we we were we, we didn't come out clean from that, and it is still going on. The same kind of thing goes on today with white supremacy elsewhere. So, so not only white people but Christian people need to take responsibility for that. 
white supremacy is our problem. Mm. That those, that those are our terrorists who are doing that. Well, that's this, this is the same mindset that um, that allowed for the enslavement of Africans um, here in you know North America, you know South America, uh, and so on. And there, there, there are not many conversations, I think, where accountability um, is is really considered. Uh, we can look at th- we look at things and we kind of document them in a very passive sense. This happened, but we don't look at the the root causes of why these came about. And furthermore, we don't take the the, the steps to say, well, how do we make sure that these types of uh, uh, um, acts don't happen again in the future. We just kind of look at them very much in a voyeuristic uh, Correct. type of manner. Correct. And, and so uh, the, the solution here, as long as Christians don't deal with the question of Christian supremacy, you cannot, my argument is that you cannot deal with white supremacy. And as long as you don't deal with white supremacy, white supremacists violence will continue mm. and and i think the same goes for um, for people like the the the, the group that uh, shot up or bombed the churches yeah as long as the muslim community does not take responsibility for its own people who are committing acts of terrorism Right. And asking the question, okay, what are we? What's going on here? What's is there anything that we are saying or doing wrong that these pe- this is happening to these people? We, you, we will not, we will not address that question. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's when good people in all our religious traditions take responsibility and are willing to look self-critically at our traditions mm-hmm. and say we have some problems we are going to have to address. If you don't do that, then everybody is going to think, well, this is just an anomaly. It'll come and go. We are just going to go on as usual. We can't go on as usual. After Not after New Zealand, not after Pittsburgh, and not after what happened in Sri Lanka. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chantal. Oh, I really you're appreciate welcome. you taking the time. Yeah. Um, and I think this, this leaves us with a lot to think about and a lot to act on. Um, because I've been one, this is probably another conversation, uh, but just my my engagement with uh, CVE, um, you know, accounting violent extremism for those who may not know the, uh, that, you know, those, those, those uh, know it by that name. Uh, it has been one, it's been a lot of pushback uh, for, for a lot of different reasons but there's definitely a need for accountability, uh, and there's certainly a need for um, for building power and for public education, so that when we hear Muslim, we hear Christian, we hear Jew, that we we really see love of, of God, love of neighbor, and anything else that we see that manifests outside of that, that we just reject it. We don't care what you call yourself, we reject it. So there there there's there's a lot. Um, there's a lot for us to think about and, and to work toward. So, Just one final word, and that is to say that the interfaith peacemaker teams, we believe, is a real solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
religious people coming together to build peace, to build power so that they can act together and build peace. Can you tell people how they can get more information about the uh, Interfaith Peacemaker Teams? Well, go to our website, omnialeadership.org. Okay. Um, you can send me an email on shanta at omnialeadership.org. Um, and uh, we are on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all of those platforms. <laughs> okay. Well, it has been a pleasure once again. Thank you very much, Tariq. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. That was Reverend Dr. Shanta Primarwatana, uh, the president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. Uh, folks, we are winding down, but before we get out of here and say our goodbyes, we want to remind you about the upcoming Sound Vision Dinner, May 4th, 6 p.m. at the Doubletree Hotel in Oak Brook, Illinois. Tickets are $100. Uh, they will not be sold on site. You need to go to uh, soundvision.com forward slash Ilhan. That's right, forward slash Ilhan. Uh, and that is because our keynote speaker is none other than Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, uh, who has taken an extremely principled stance. She has not backed down in the uh, face of really unprecedented uh, uh, attacks from a sitting president, no less. We hope that you will come out and not only uh, show support for her, uh, uh, as I said, she's our keynote speaker, but also show some support for the work that Sound Vision has done for the past 31 years. Tickets will not be sold the day of. So you need to make sure you get your tickets ahead of time. Go to soundvision.com forward slash Ilhan uh, and get your tickets. All right. Um, we thank you all for joining us. We thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.